watching at home, there's a few people who made it in and who can't make it home. And so we'll be living here at Friends Church for the rest of their lives, or at least until the roads uh, freeze back up. So let's, let's begin in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to stand before you and to preach your gospel. And we thank you that you've given us the gospel in the very first place. And we uh, ask that this message um, reaches out to people out there. Because uh, this message on forgiveness is important for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this point, we usually take up the offering, but I guess there's probably no point for that. So you, um, with this verse, uh, part of the verse that we're doing, Matthew six twelve today, it's uh, the part where it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And you've probably seen, guys, you've probably seen where it uses different words there. Sometimes you see it says trespasses. Sometimes you see it says uh, sins. Um, sometimes you see it says debts. Um, these words are used somewhat synonymously, but they do have different meanings. And so that's why you'll see them used differently. But for today's sermon, we're going to use forgive us our sins because that's a word that everybody understands. Some people don't understand the word debts or the uh, or trespasses. They take on sort of new modern connotations. So today we'll just stick with sin. So forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Um, a wise man once said, and by a wise man I mean Floyd, and by once said I meant over and over and over, that the New Testament is about relationships. And it is. Uh, it's about our relationship with Jesus the Son. It's about our relationship with God. And it's about this horizontal relationship that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ and those whom we would like to win to Christ as well. And because of the fall of man, because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, relationships are now very messy. At one time they had this awesome thing. It was just God, Adam and Eve hanging out. Everything was great. The animals were awesome. Everybody was having a great time. But because of what happened there, we now have sin in our lives because of what happened there. That sin leads to messy relationships. Um, and a lot of times we step on each other's toes. A lot of times we sin against each other. We we say things we shouldn't even accidentally. Sometimes we hurt each other's feelings. Now, I remember as a kid growing up that I had to move around a lot. And when I was about 16 years old, my parents got divorced and I. I took away from something, from that relationship, something I shouldn't have taken away. Uh, there was a lot of tension, uh, as always goes around a divorce. Um, most divorces aren't amicable, and this one wasn't. And the tension between my mother and father, they didn't fight a lot in front of us, but you could still feel it. As a 16-year-old kid, you knew something was wrong. It was palpable. It was like walking on eggshells all the time. And so when my parents split, I was raised by my father. And my mom left, and I didn't see her for 20 years. And uh, I didn't know why, but I knew all of a sudden at least that tension was gone in my life. That tension, it was, it was easier around the house. Of course, my, uh, I didn't have a mom anymore, and of course my dad was, was miserable, but he was doing his best to hide it, um, being the kind of guy he was, and, and doing the best he could raising us by himself. But the tension was gone. So I got in my mind, I thought, you know what? It feels better right now. And so what I will do in my life is I'm going to purposely not get close to people. I'm going to purposely not have any relationships, uh, 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 too many relationships 
that are, are more than arm's reach. And the reason, because I don't want drama in my life. I don't want tension in my life. I don't want a messy relationship in my life. And I thought this was the best way to live life. And of course it wasn't. And I had to learn the hard way and still learning today, as I've shared with many of you, um, about my social anxieties and my, uh, my ability to get along in, in large groups of people. And I'll talk more about that here in a little bit. This bit uh, in a little bit. But I, I would suggest that the single cause, if you had to point to one cause for animosity in relationships, something that makes relationships messy, I would say it was the lack of forgiveness. I think that is really what we get at in our society today. Our inability to forgive each other, even the smallest slights, it gets in, it it forms a wedge, and it causes uh, tension, it causes messy relationships. And I'm going to share with you guys today, and you people at home, a couple of stories. And there's thousands of them like this, and you you might even know some of these stories, but three stories of forgiveness and how they played out. And along, along the way, I'm going to show you how not forgiving, hopefully, will affect you in adverse ways. First of all, unforgiveness affects you physically. Okay, if you don't forgive people physically, it will affect you. Scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Okay, don't sin. He's saying it's a sin to let the sun go down while you're still angry. Okay, guys, we don't go and sleep on the couch. I know it's hard to sleep next to a woman who's very angry lest, you know, she wait till you're asleep and do things to you. But we don't want to let the sun go down on us while we're still angry. And why is that? And that's because if we go to sleep angry, if we don't resolve, if we don't forgive, if we don't ask for forgiveness, by the next day, That whole thing is metastasized. The devil has a foothold. The devil is able to get in. And this is one of the oldest tricks in the devil's book of evil tricks. Remember Cain and Abel. Cain's feelings are hurt because of this perceived slight over an offering. He stews about it. He gives the devil a foothold. And we know how that turned out. Now, if you've ever gotten a chance to read Ronald Reagan's diary, you're going to be familiar with the story I've told you. And it's, I, I highly recommend it. And it's not a memoir. It's not him looking back at his time uh, in the presidency. It's a, he, takes, he writes in, every day. It's a diary. He writes about the number of jelly beans he ate. And sometimes it's just innocuous stuff like that. But there's one story that always sticks out to me when I read Ronald Reagan's diary. And it was the time uh, uh, when he talks about his attempted assassination on his life by... John Hinckley, right? Now, John Hinckley, as you guys probably remember, and some of you people at home are too young to remember even who Ronald Reagan is, John Hinckley was a very disturbed young man, and he was in love with Jodie Foster, and he thought that uh, assassinating the president would somehow cause Jodie Foster to love him. I don't, I'm not sure if he knew that Jodie Foster was a lesbian, but that's, 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 that's how messed up he was in his brain. He thought, I'll shoot the president, Jodie Foster will fall in love with me, and we will live happily ever after. So the president's leaving the Washington Hilton, Washington, D.C. Hilton. He's getting into his, um, his limousine. If you remember, he kind of waves his arm, and you see him sort of go like this, and the shots rang out, and a bullet entered into him, into his lung, pierced his lung. Um, I think it rattled around inside of there. I'm not sure if it went out the other side, but um, 
a bad shot. And a couple of other people got shot. A Secret Service agent got shot. Um, his press secretary, James Brady, took one in the head, believe it or not. Uh, they throw Reagan in the car. They, he, he, he writes about this. He writes about all of a sudden these guys just jumping on him. He's like, ow, man, you're crushing my rib, not knowing at the time it's the bullet that's entered into him that's causing the pain. He gets up. They're whisking him off to the hospital. He realizes, okay, I've been shot. I'm bleeding here. This is not good. I've got to get to the hospital. So they pull up at the hospital, and Ronald Reagan being Ronald Reagan, he, he says, I'm going to walk in under my own power. Okay, he's a cowboy. So he gets up. He says he smooths out his pants, buttons his jacket, makes sure his tie is okay. Um, his hair, of course, hasn't moved because he has that great hair. But so he walks in to the hospital, you know, an old cowboy, probably lit up a cigarette, you know, smoke coming out through the hole in his long hair on the side. Walks in there, gets inside. When they close the door, then he collapses and they pick him up and they put him on the gurney and they whisk him down to the emergency room. And he's lying there in excruciating pain. And he writes about this in his memoirs. He says, I am in so much pain. I have never been in this much pain in my entire life. And I started to ask God. I said, God, please, please help me with this pain. Please take this pain out of my, out of my body. And then he re- remembers all of a sudden that it's unright for him. It's not right for him to ask God to take the pain out of his body while he still harbors hate in his heart for the person who just shot him. And so he stops right there and then, and he says, God, please forgive that man. I forgive that man. And so this is a very real way in which forgiveness helps us physically. He couldn't ask to have the pain removed because he knew he still harbored animosity in his heart for this man. So he stops, does that, and then he's able to ask God who he believed could take the pain away to have that released. And this is what forgiveness or the lack of forgiveness does to us. It's a, it's a, unforgiveness is a poison. It lives inside of it. And the longer we keep it inside of us, the more damage it can do. All right? So it gets in there. It, it, it causes ulcers. It causes hypertension. It causes zits. You name it, whatever. It causes a lot of stress in your body, and it's bad for you because you haven't forgiven. And more importantly... It blocks our relationship with God because it saps our energy. We don't have the time to do the things that we want to do in God's name. Pray. Share the gospel with other people. Do nice things for each other because we're too wrapped up in our need for vengeance to forgive. Forgiveness is also good for us mentally. Scripture says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Just get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to another. And listen to this, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. And anybody who's ever harbored a grudge is well aware of the time we waste thinking about it. We become consumed for this need, this desire for, for revenge. We have this bitterness that lives inside of us. We can't even think about other things, right? You, you stay up at night. You think about that slight. You're lying there in bed thinking, how am I going to get back at this person? How could that person ever do this to me? You're, you're this one-track mind. You have a train that's going down this track, and that train's about to be derailed. It's that bad. This is what forgiveness, uh, unforgiveness does to us mentally. It consumes us. And there's a Chinese proverb that states, before starting down the road to revenge, dig Too 
graves. Because that's what it does to you. Even if you get your revenge, it messes you up physically and mentally. Her name was 66730. At least that's the name she went by. Her father had died in a German concentration camp, as did her sister Betsy. This woman was a Christian. She lived in Holland. Strong Christian family, ministers, all. And one of the things that they did was, like other strong Christians in, in Holland, was to hide Jews. And they, uh, they hid some Jews. They got caught. The SS showed up, arrested them, and put them at a concentration camp. Her freedom, her dignity, her humanity had been stripped away by those who imprisoned her. And yet she survived. They had robbed her of everything she ever possessed, but they couldn't rob her of the one who possessed her, Jesus Christ. She saw every day in the concentration camp, camp, Ravensbrück, as a chance to minister to somebody more needy than herself. And then one day she was released by a clerical error error after her, her, her father and her sister had died. And as suddenly as she'd become a prisoner, she was freed. And her solitary, solitary aim from that moment forward was to minister to others. When the war was over, she began traveling and speaking, sharing her Savior and the vision that he had given her. And then one day something happened that shook her to the very center of her core. And this is what she said. And by the way, you probably don't know her as 66730. You might know her as Corey Ten Boom. She says, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there back in my mind, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, and my sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as church was emptying, beaming and bowing. He said, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. To think, as you say, he has washed away my sins. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often on the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. And I was going to ask for more. Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me forgive him. I tried to smile. I I struggled to raise my hand and I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And her hand went up. And as as I took my hand, the most incredible thing happened from my shoulder along my arm and through my hand. A current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that this world's healings hinges on, but his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. Forgiveness is hard. I know it's hard. 
we want to hold on to it because we think we're justified in doing that. And sometimes we can't do it. And sometimes we have to, as Corey did, say, God, please help me. Give me the forgiveness. And he will. He, he'll lift your arm up. He'll do amazing things for you. But since the fall of man, something's happened to our brains mentally. We're unbalanced. Everything's unwired. Our default mental state is not to forgive when we are harmed. And sometimes it's impossible for us to do it. And it is impossible for us to renew our minds and get back to that default mental state without God's help. Too often today, we are shown that the only way to get back at people is not to forgive them, but to seek vengeance. And it destroys your soul. Thirdly, forgiveness is good for us spiritually. Scripture says, Therefore, if you were offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or your sister, we know this one from CR, don't we guys? Has something against you. You leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Forgiveness is good for us spiritually. There is an amazing story of a guy by the name of Michio Fuchida. He was a Japanese war uh, a fighter pilot uh, during World War II. And there was another guy on the other side, the Americans, by the name of Jacob DeShazer. Now Mitsuo, he was born into a, a world of privilege in Japan. His father was a principal at the school he worked at. And so when he was 18 years old, he was able to join uh, the uh, Naval War College, uh, their version of Annapolis. And he went on to graduate with honors and became their most decorated pilot. Um, By the time Pearl Harbor came around, he had over 10,000 hours in the cockpit of his fighter airplane, and he was a captain by then. And so he was chosen to plan the, the attack and to lead the attack on Pearl Harbor. So on December 7, 1941, he led a platoon, a squadron, I should say, of 360 airplanes. And as they crossed over Ford Field and over into Pearl Harbor, he was the one who gave the command, dive, dive, dive. And of course, those 360 planes did exactly that and went in and took countless lives and sunk eight of, uh, just decimated our, our, our Pacific fleet. Eight ships were sunk there in Pearl Harbor, many of them still there today. So, big success for him. And he would go on to fly many other missions But as the tide of the war turned, something amazing started to happen. For some reason, every battle that the Japanese would go on to lose, like the Battle of Midway, something would prevent him from being in it. So in the Battle of Midway, hundreds of Japanese fighter pilots were shot down. But he came down with an appendicitis, missed it. This would continue happening. But he wanted to fight to the last man. He did not want to surrender, even though the tide of the war had turned. He was in Hiroshima one day, pleading his case for that. Do not surrender, he said to the emperor. Do not. He was called back to Tokyo. He was supposed to stay overnight and leave the next day. He was called back to Tokyo, immediately left. And the very next day, the Enola Gay flies over, drops fat man on Hiroshima and 100,000 Japanese people were vaporized in the blink of an eye. God had a plan for him. 
He didn't know it. He was a Buddhist. He didn't listen to our God. On the other side of the world, there's a guy by the name of Jacob DeShazer, and he was an army corporal at the time. And when the news of Pearl Harbor came in, he became enraged. He remembers standing up, taking the potato he was peeling and cursing it and throwing it against the wall, swearing to kill as many Japs as he could. And so, on April 18, 1942, Army Corporal Jacob DeShazer boarded a bomber plane with his pilot, Lieutenant William Farrow, and a co-pilot navigator and a rear gunner. Their mission was to bomb Tokyo in the famous Doolittle Raid. Now, if you remember about the Doolittle Raid, it was kind of dicey. They knew they had to bomb Tokyo. The problem was we didn't have a base close enough to get there, which meant the guys weren't going to make it back. They were going to have to fly off the carrier into Tokyo, bomb it, fly as far back as they can, and then ditch their planes somewhere, and then try to make it back to safety. And then when mission was accomplished, they did it. They were to land on the shores of the enemy territory. But they never received the word as to where they were supposed to land. So with the fuel running low, Lieutenant Farrow gave the order for all on board to jump out, to parachute out. DeShazer made a safe landing and he was immediately taken prisoner by ten Japanese soldiers. And though his life was spared, he was tortured ruthlessly before being placed in solitary confinement for two years where he died or where he came close to dying in fact several of the of his um, captors died of dysentery and the Japanese wanted to keep him alive as bargaining chips and so they decided to increase their rations and give them something to read to increase their morale to see if they could you know keep them around a little bit longer well, the only book, as it would, uh, as it would be, uh, come to be, that they had to read was, of course, the Bible. But there was only one Bible. So they didn't know what to do, right? So they had to share it. And they're all in solitary confinement. DeShazer had to wait six months to read the Bible, the one thing that we had to read. Finally, when it was his turn, he read the scriptures over and over and over again. Now, he was raised in a Christian home, but he had never given his life to Christ, all right? He'd never accepted it. And on his final day, when he was allowed to read the Bible, when his turn was up, he read Romans 10.9. It spoke to him, and he confessed his belief in Christ, and he begged for forgiveness. And immediately he realized God spoke to him. He was going to have to change his life. Now, I don't know what kind of life change you can make when you're in solitary confinement in a Japanese prison, but that's what God spoke to him. One day, shortly after his conversion, DeShazer was being hauled back to his cell after some exercise, and the Japanese guard sh uh, slammed his foot in the cell door. And instead of, you know, allowing him to take his foot out, the Japanese guard took his steel-toed boots and just started kicking his foot through the door. DeShazer got mad. DeShazer got mad, pushed the door open, took his foot out, glared at the Japanese soldier, and at that moment, Christ spoke to him, and he knew what changes he had to make in his life. And just like Paul, he started to minister to the guards in the prison. Kindness at first, and then the word later. On August 6, 1945, the day the atomic bomb was dropped, DeShazer woke up at 7 a.m. God said, you need to start praying and pray for peace. And at 2 p.m., the Holy Spirit told the prisoner, you don't need to pray anymore. The victory was won. God had told him the war was over. 
Immediately his thoughts turned to his captors, wondering what what happened to the Japanese people now that they had surrendered. He'd seen what had happened. Tokyo bombed, millions of people dead, and he was worried about them. In 1948, Jacob de Chazer returned to Japan with his wife, Florence, as a missionary. And by that time, army chaplains had distributed more than a million tracts containing his testimony. The tract was called, I Was a Prisoner of the Japanese. Thousands of people lined up because they wanted to see who this man is, who the man was who could forgive his enemies. In his first few months in Japan, the former bomber had spoken to 200 places and then he helped all these Japanese people start their own Christian churches. And although the church planning was going well, early in 1950, he longed for a revival in Japan. So he started fasting and for 40 days praying for the salvation of the Japanese people. At that very time, Michiwo Fuchida had returned to civilian life and took up a, a, a farm, but he was full of hatred for what had happened to his people, full of remorse for the thousands of people that he killed at Pearl Harbor as he led that, that attack on December 7th. And it was eating away at him, and he didn't know what he was going to do. So he's walking down the street, and sure enough, somebody hands him this track. And he picks it up, and he starts to read it. The next day, he seeks out this man, Jacob DeShazer, and he goes to his house. He wants to see about this Jesus Christ person. He wants to see about how this forgiveness thing works. In 1959, a dream came true for DeShazer when he moved to Nagoya to establish a Christian church in the city he had bombed. Because of one man who shared the Bible, thousands and millions of Japanese today are Christians. Finally today, forgiveness is not optional. Scripture says, if you read this, this is right after the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. It's not an option. There's all these reasons it's good for us physically, mentally, and spiritually. But first and foremost, it's not an option. When I was uh, um, about 35 years old, and I, I told you I hadn't seen my mom for 20 years or heard from her for 20 years, but thankfully I'd become a Christian And somehow, God had impressed upon me in my life the need for forgiveness. And so my mother, out of the blue, reaches out to me on Facebook, of all things. And all these feelings came back. Amazingly enough, I was a 16-year-old boy again. Hurt, wondering why I hadn't seen my mom in 20 years not knowing the circumstances, you know, blaming her, obviously. You live with one parent, even if that parent is trying to, you know, not speak bad about the other. It slips out as a 16-year-old kid. You build these things up in your head. 
I had things I wanted to say. But I didn't do it. Because almost immediately God said to me, forgive. What good does it do? And of course I learned more about the story as my mother and I, by God's grace, came back together and have a relationship. It's not perfect. We work on it. But it's great to have her back in my life. I didn't have to do that. I was justified, I thought, in my reasons for not wanting to speak to her, for wanting revenge for life without a mother. But God spoke to me as clear as day in that moment. He said, forgive. Now, that's not my default position. It's not always to forgive. But in this case... I believe God knew how important it was for me in my life to do that. Does forgiveness mean forgetting? No, absolutely not. It doesn't. We're called to forgive. That's our job. And we need to do that. That needs to be our default mental state, to forgive. If somebody does something, they come up to you, you forgive them. That's what you're supposed to do. But that doesn't mean you forget. It causes scars, these hurts. And we live with these scars. But as soon as we start forgiving, we can start healing. However, if you have, for example, somebody in your life who is lying to you over and over and over, they keep coming to you and asking for forgiveness, you say, yes, there comes a point when you need to get that person out of your life. You forgive them, absolutely. But do you forget that they're not capable of telling you the truth? No. If you have an employee or somebody who's close to you, who's stealing from you, do you forgive them for that when they come and ask? Yes, you do. Do you let them run the cash register? No, you don't. In fact, they probably won't have a job anymore. But that doesn't mean you don't forgive them. We've seen countless times. There was a man who stood up on this, on this pulpit, Glenn Totten, and he told a story about how he found out his own father had been sexually abusing his grandchildren, his children. And he talked about how he had to forgive and how important it was to forgive. And no, it wasn't easy. Did he forgive? Yeah, he did eventually. But do you, in a circumstance like that, Put your children back in that same circumstance. No, of course you don't. This is the difference between forgiving and forgetting. We are called to forgive. We do it. That's our job because it's good for us. And because that's what God did for us. While we were still in our sins, he died on the cross. You might bear the scars of sexual abuse, physical abuse, somebody lying to you, stealing. You might have a marriage or a divorce in your life. Sometimes it takes a long time for the pain to go away. The scars might always be there, but by forgiving, you can begin to heal. I didn't finish the story about Mitsuo Fuchida, who went and saw Jacob DeShazer. So here's this guy who led the attack on Pearl Harbor, who narrowly missed being vaporized at Hiroshima. He's 
read the tract. He is sitting in front of the man who spent two years being tortured by his own countrymen. The man says, I can forgive. I have forgiven. Fuchida says, but don't you understand? Don't you understand? I have blood on my hands. And Jashazer looks at him straight in the eye and goes, don't you understand? He has blood on his hands. He has scars. And at that moment, Fuchida took Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he went on to evangelize the people all over Japan, share the gospel with people all over the world. You can even see an interview of, of, with him on YouTube with Merv Griffin. It is an amazing story. But it is a story of forgiveness, and we all know these stories. We all have these stories in our lives. God calls on us to forgive. He does it because he knows it's good for us. We think in our own minds, I am justified. I am self-righteous. That person has done me wrong. That person needs to pay. Justice must be served. And guess what? Justice will be served. But it's not your job. It's your job to forgive. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You forgave us. Every single one of us. Every sin that's ever been committed or ever will be committed was washed away. We've been made not guilty by your blood. It's as if the sin never existed in your mind. And because of that, we're able to stand before you. Lord, just give us the power to forgive. When, it's in, when, when we find it ourselves incapable of forgiving because we're so mad, remind us to ask for your power to forgive as you've forgiven us. Help us to remember what it feels like to be forgiven. Help us to remember what it feels like to know that we're going to spend eternity in heaven with you. Help us walk in that forgiveness every day. And let that forgiveness and that assurance give us the courage to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. Put those people in our path, Lord, so that we can share 